We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. This week, we're discussing how to fix a country with James Plunkett. Here's the host, Kat Hanna, with more. Today, we're speaking to James Plunkett, a man thinking about how our societies work and how we can fix a few things in them. His new book, End State, Nine Ways in Which Society is Broken, is more upbeat than that slightly doom-laden title suggests, asking questions such as, is it time to get rid of Mondays in the working week? Can populism be combated by giving young people an actual say in their futures? Would some sectors of society be less poor if we maybe just gave them a bit more money? James is well positioned to answer some of these questions. He's Director of Policy and Advocacy for Citizens Advice in the UK. He was also at one time an advisor in Downing Street to the former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, James. Good afternoon. I wanted to begin really by getting a bit of a sense of where the idea of this book originally came from. Yeah, sure. I mean, it actually started when I was in uh, number 10. So this was way back in 2008. And in the uh, in the kind of opening months of the financial crisis was when I was working there. And it, it came about from a, a meeting, I guess, with Gordon Brown and Tim Berners-Lee um, was where the kind of idea first popped into my head. And it was less about the substance of the meeting itself and more this sort of the vibe I got um, when I left the meeting. So, you know, we were sitting there, I remember in the, in the number 10 garden, it was a kind of spring, spring day. And we were sitting there talking about um, government and how government sort of responds to changes in technology. And, and what, what struck me at the time was this really profound sense of a disconnect between the ways that the two, the two of them were talking. So you had kind of Tim, you know, Tim Berners-Lee on one side, who I think any, as anyone who's heard him speak, talks in a very distinctive way. And he was speaking in a language of sort of uh, networks and platforms and talking about the way in which this new, uh, at the time, sort of emerging economy, uh, the digital economy was working. And on the other hand, you had Gordon Brown, who was talking very much in the, the language, if you like, of the 20th century state. Um, and you know, he was talking about things like what are the kind of the big levers that the state can pull, the big clunking fist, if you like, of government. Uh, and I remember being kind of incredibly struck leaving the meeting, just how sort of different these two discourses and almost logics uh, felt. Um, and I, I didn't quite realise it, I think, at the time, but later I sort of, it dawned on me that in a way what that was representing was this sort of difference between, if you like, the 20th century state and the way we think about government and this 21st century economy, which in, in the 10 years since then has kind of changed all of our lives and cha- changed how we work and live. So that was the initial kernel of the idea. So I guess this question of, you know, how we work and live and how that's changed and what it'll look like in the future is something that's obviously very much been at the forefront of our minds recently. And it'd be good to know, I guess, really actually how the background of COVID, you know, is it something that kind of changed your thinking or even the process of writing this book? Yeah, I think I think it has. I think the book or the idea, as I say, of the book started long before COVID and um, certainly over the last 10 years, I think it's become increasingly apparent just how profoundly the economy is being changed by technology. And, you know, we've seen over, over that 
that 10 year period and even more that the, this emergence of new problems like the, you know, the gig economy, the kind of lack of security people have in parts of the labor market. We've seen emerging problems like these monopolies of the, the big tech companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook, um, problems like burnout as well. And the kind of sense of you know, productivity is not performing well. And yet we're all feeling completely burned out and this kind of intense pace of work. So I think a lot of that was around long before COVID hit, but certainly in COVID. And I was writing the book from lockdown, you know, kind of locked in the sort of studio flat. And um, and many of those problems seem to get worse, I would say, you know, during lockdown is one thing. So things like burnout, I think all of us in the last 18 months have found yeah, and this experience particularly intense in the sense of kind of over, overwhelm with the use of technology. So I think that's that's been quite profound. And also, I think it, I think what many of us did throughout the lockdown period was to some degree step back and ask some quite big questions about it, maybe in our personal lives: Are we on the right track? Are we spending our time in the right way? And I guess in a way, what my book's doing is asking some of those questions for society: Kind of, are we on the right track? Do we need to change course? Are we are we governing this new economy in the right kind of way so that we're heading for a better future or not? And then, so the, in a way, the book felt, if you like, more timely after COVID than it, than it had beforehand. I'd like to pick up on this this question about work a bit more because it's a very important theme, obviously, in the book and. Again, thinking about the framing of lockdown as, I guess, emphasizing really the kind of the inequality in terms of the different types of jobs that we have that people do. And those, I guess, who in many ways have had, I guess, a more positive experience of lockdown in terms of being able to work from, you know, the comfort and security of their own home, as compared to those who have either found themselves, you know, unemployed or with, with fewer hours or who have actually really been at the front line of dealing with, you know, I guess, the kind of the more risky um, aspects of dealing with COVID and also just the importance of day-to-day roles like making sure our supermarket shelves were stocked. And you know, you kind of raise in the book, I think it's Alan Mann, LSE academic, this distinction, I guess, between lousy jobs and, and lovely jobs. And do, do you think the crisis in any way is going to change any of our thinking about these types of jobs? And I guess really the question that you raise of actually how we decide how they should be rewarded. Yeah, I think it, this is a really profound question. I think one of the big changes I explore in the book is essentially the, the sort of, if you like, the shape of job creation. So one of the big shifts we've seen economically over the last 20 years, even actually it's relatively recent, is this idea of pe- people call it a polarization in the labor market. Um, and what you see is there's quite a significant change in the kinds of jobs the, the economy is creating, um, even in periods of economic growth that in the past, in particularly in the 50s and 60s, we saw a, a Western economy is creating over time jobs that got better. So, you know, over time, automation and technology would, if you like, destroy lower skilled, lower paid jobs and create jobs at the top. And so you saw this kind of upward drift in the quality of of jobs over time. In the last 20 years, and even before the pandemic, we saw that those charts, if you like, they they kind of started to sag in the middle. So you saw continued growth of jobs at the top. So software engineers is the kind of case in point, but then this really um, rapid growth in low paid jobs at the bottom. And there's, uh, interestingly, you mentioned jobs in the pandemic. There are three types of jobs that economists kind of forecast growing strongly in the future. One is caring jobs, which are often incredibly low paid, despite being incredibly important roles. Another is a set of jobs they call last mile jobs, which are these kind of slightly dystopian roles where you're kind of picking up after the machines. So it's things like uh, warehouse operatives or um, a chat room moderator, those kind of jobs. Um, and, the, and the third is what they call wealth work, which is where you're essentially working for the new rich. So, um, you know, jobs like um, a therapist um, and some of those jobs are these kind of jobs you mentioned of people you know, delivering food to the homes of people that have relatively high incomes. And I, I do think in the pandemic, we saw, if anything, those trends again accelerate. Um, and this profound sense that there's actually quite a large section of the labor market that is incredibly low paid doing valuable work. Uh, and those jobs aren't going anywhere. If anything, they're going to grow into the future. Yeah. And I guess picking up really on, you know, quite a unique perspective that you're able to bring to this book is actually, I guess, what what the consequences are of this type of job creation are on actually individuals' lives. And I think obviously a lot of this is not just from your experience, you know, previously in politics, but actually in your current role with Citizens Advice. Do you want to explain just a bit, I guess, for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know a bit about what Citizens Advice does and actually, I guess, really, you know, some of the human stories that you're actually able to bring to the book? And, you know, for almost anyone saying, well, why are all these issues 
so important. Mm. Yeah, I, I think if, for me personally, because I started my career more on the kind of economic side of things in um, in think tanks, and then in a way I became more hungry for that to understand that human side of of these big trends and move to citizens' advice. And I think it, it's really the human. It's kind of what does it feel like to live in live in an economy like this? I remember, for example, talking to um, when I was writing the book, talking to you know people who are in in low paid work, um, and this this sense of this kind of profound disconnect i guess between the jobs that they were doing and the, the kind of economy you know the kind of opportunity that was out there in the economy so um an example i give in the book is you know the the, the case of uber as an employer you know uber employs both pretty low paid drivers which it obviously claims are not even employees and and very high paid software engineers that work on the platform and that gives a kind of good example of the fact that you know maybe in the past you could have worked your way up through a company like that and work your way up the ladder of jobs. Whereas, you know, the, the Uber drivers that I spoke to writing the book, obviously, you know, what, what's their prospect of working their way up through Uber as a company to become a software engineer? If, if you like, some of those rungs of the ladder seem to be missing. Uh, and again, you get this sense of polarization where there's almost like there are two countries kind of you know, forking off from each other, one very high paid uh, and one very low paid. And the, the other people, I, I kind of, the, the stories that stick in my mind are people who are interacting with the welfare system. And obviously this has been discussed a lot in recent weeks with the government cutting in the UK, cutting universal credit, the main, um, the main family benefit. And again, people interacting with the benefit system, just having an appalling time of it in terms of the complexity, the sort of stigma that they felt in having to even ask for help. And I just was left with this real sense that even some of these systems that we've built with good intentions over the years and that are supposed to be there to help people and, and make their lives more secure often leave people feeling you know, more anxious, if anything, even though ironically it's called social security and certainly um, so, feeling not valued. Yeah. So where do you think that's gone wrong? I mean, you make the point that, you know, often a lot of these reforms have been, you know, at least in principle, either about, you know, simplifying or perhaps, you know, making the system more fair. But as you say, the outcome in many circumstances has been has been the opposite. What what is it? You know, where where have we gone wrong um, in this? Particularly, I guess, either from the perspective of economically what we're trying to do, or also actually just from the kind of the machinery of government. Yeah, I think I think this is a really interesting question because I, I think it's. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of, if you like, blame on the left and the right on this. I don't think, you know, the, my, my book is not a sort of, um, quite, I think it's quite hard to place on the political spectrum in some ways. And so it's actually quite a complicated story, I think, in terms of, you know, where we collectively have, have gone wrong. And I think just, you know, to give to give one kind of part of the answer, I think there's something quite interesting in, in the way in which economics and I guess a kind of technocratic mindset came to dominate public policy over the last, say, 50 to 70 years. And many of these systems that, you know, the, the, the welfare system in Britain and indeed in most countries is a perfect example of this, where we, if you like, we tried to design the perfectly efficient technocratic solution to problems like poverty and mobility. Uh, over time, that solution got more and more complex. The formulas we use to calculate people's benefits are almost impossible for people to understand interacting with those systems is unbelievably complex and quite stigmatizing and you know it doesn't make you feel good at the end of the day and leaves you feeling worried and confused and so in some cases i think what what's needed now and i think what actually might now happen is to be honest a slightly more human approach to some of these debates where we're not just saying you know what's the perfectly efficient economic answer to some of these problems but what is a what is a good way to treat people and bringing back in some of the humanity i guess to some of these debates about poverty brilliant and then i guess thinking a bit more maybe long term perhaps about what some of the solutions are particularly i guess to this question of inequality of income. And, you know, one of the solutions that you explore in the book is universal basic income. So I wonder if you could just, again, I guess for those maybe who aren't familiar with the term, just explain briefly what it means. And actually, how how do you think, you know, is it something that could actually be realistic? Um, and if so, how might such a dramatic change, I guess, to even what our mindset is when it comes to, to be approaching income, how do we would we even bring about that if we were to decide it were, were a kind of desirable aim? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. One of the um, the sort of the other idea that runs through the book says kind of nine big um, you know, nine big problems and nine big ideas, and this is one of them. And um, 
a lot of what I do in the book is look back at history about this question of, you know, at times when big social problems emerge and obviously the industrial revolution is the kind of um is the kind of case study here that i look at repeatedly in the book this kind of pattern where these big new social problems emerge as as a result of technology changing how we live and work and then what often happens is the problems kind of accumulate and get worse and worse and then slowly these new ideas start to emerge that at first everyone says are impossible, idealistic, unaffordable, dangerous in some cases. And then there's just this fascinating process where these ideas go from seeming completely impossible to seeming inevitable. And a basic income, I think, is is a really interesting one that at the moment is seen as completely impossible. And many people think it's quite a dangerous idea, even on the left. But it's emerging, as an, I guess, as an idea for how we might have a benefit system that is uh, less stigmatizing. So the idea of a basic income is it's more universal, so more people get help. So it's not targeted, if you like, as much on some people and therefore arguably is um, more inclusive and less stigmatizing of people. It, the idea is it's much simpler, so it's a much kind of cleaner, simpler benefit system where you know what you're going to get. It's flatter. So, you know, people on the left in particular argue it's worse for combating poverty, for example, because the money is targeted less at, if you like, people that need it the most, because it's trying to kind of deal with some of those problems around just complexity and stigma and the stigmatizing effects of um, of the welfare system. And I just, in the book, I, it's not so much that I'm advocating for it. And you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I think I'm becoming a more of a supporter of, you, of, of a basic income. Um, but it's more that I just think it's fascinating to ask, you know, in the past, these radical ideas emerged to deal with big problems, you know, ideas at the time, like universal healthcare, you know, free education, public sewage systems, economic regulation, the welfare state. So a fascinating question, I think, which I kind of explore throughout the book is, what are those ideas today? So there will be ideas today that we think are impossible and idealistic, and that will become inevitable over the next 20 years. And I think a basic income is an, an interesting candidate that might be on that list. I think that historical perspective is, again, something that probably makes this book quite different from, um, you know, one of many that I think have perhaps looked at, you know, maybe sort of moving towards a utopia or, you know, what some of these sort of visions of the future could be and how we grapple with, with technology. It'd be great to hear, I guess, maybe in a bit more detail, what are what are one or two of the examples of you talked about these really quite dramatic, you know, changes that took place as a response, I guess, to, to kind of previous almost challenges or even crises in capitalism. Talk, talk us through one or two examples that you think we could particularly learn from today in terms of not necessarily the change itself, but the process of how it came about. Yeah, so I, I became, um, I surprised myself in a way. I didn't really set out to write a particularly optimistic book because I knew I was dealing with big complex problems. But um, this is one of the things that made me more optimistic as in the course of writing the book, and it ended up being actually very optimistic as a story, is this, um, this fact that these ideas in the past emerged. We had similar huge problems, ideas emerged, and we solved them. So, um, you know, one, one example is uh, the problem of sewage. So, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, obviously there was very rapid urbanisation and people swelled the cities, London, Birmingham and Manchester and so on. And there was no public sewage system. And so, you know, in London, uh, on the banks of the Thames, the sewage, I mean, literally piled up um, until it reached about two metres deep. The smell was so bad that people wrote letters to the Times newspaper, and you can you can read these letters. People complaining at, at MPs to say, "What the hell are you doing? Why aren't you solving this this problem?" MPs, you know, it got so bad. Obviously, Parliament on the banks of the Thames. MPs, there's a wonderful moment where Disraeli literally runs from Parliament with a handkerchief clutched to his <laughs> nose because the smell is so bad. And and amazingly, then obviously this idea emerged of why doesn't the state raise money to build public sewers? And it was Disraeli himself who sort of pushed pushed through the bill um, that raised money for London's embankments, which, I mean, essentially cle cleaned up the problem, literally cleaned up the problem. And, you know, when sewers first emerged as an idea, someone called it a dangerous act of government overreach. You know, it was um, it was seen to be this radical departure from the kind of thing government had done in the past. And then, it, and then obviously, as the idea kind of took hold, people started to see, of course, this was common sense. You know, of course, this is a, a function for government. Uh, and then, of course, every government, you know, over across the world began to play a role in public infrastructure and sewage and water, tr water treatment. Um, and suddenly it became something we just accepted. There's, there's another fantastic example I love that, um, uh, which relates to the gauge wars. So this was uh, on the railways when there was very rapid 
uh, laying of railways in the 1840s. There was no rule about how far apart the train tracks should be laid. Uh, and George Stephenson and uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel had different views, the two great engineers of the time. Uh, one of them thought they should be laid far apart and one of them thought they should be laid close together. And there was no rule, so they both just proceeded to lay railways at these different gauges. And of course, wherever the tracks met, uh, you had to stop one train, everyone had to get off and everyone had to get on another train because the tracks literally didn't link up. And all it took was government to say, here's a standard gauge for railways, and that's the required gauge at which to lay all railways. So almost like an early form of you know, economic regulation, really. But again, everyone said this was not something government should do. It was an act of overreach. Um, and the gauge was drag- dragged on for about 60 years um, while this kind of madness took place where people had to keep switching trains. And eventually the government said, you know, there's a, there's a law, there's a standard gauge for railways, and they moved all the wide gauge tracks a bit closer to each other. And now we have a single gauge. So, um, yeah, just another example of kind of a new problem emerges. It's an obvious problem that needs a solution. Uh, and it takes often a long time for these seemingly very obvious solutions to be accepted. Yeah, I think picking up on those examples more, and I kind of like the ones you've chosen because they almost, I think, maybe encapsulate kind of two main, you know, what we now, I guess, would to an extent, depending on your politics, accept as kind of roles for government. And firstly is, I guess, the importance of that critical infrastructure and the investment that needs to be made in it. And then, you know, as you said, secondly, is more that point about, you know, regulation, particularly, you know, to make sure we're getting a degree of efficiency. I guess going back to the to the infrastructure point and investment and actually, you know, from from a you know, from my kind of background as an urbanist, I find the sewers a particularly interesting example, not only because, you know, they're more or less what we still rely on today, even though the you know, a massive new investment is being made. And the reason that we're actually still able to use them today is because at the time they were built, they were built essentially for a much bigger capacity than the population of London at that time. And so, you know, we often talk about the idea of future-proofing, and that was very much what was done when, when that infrastructure was made. I guess if you were, you know, when we kind of have a lot of these discussions now, we end up in kind of language around, you know, cost-benefit analysis. And again, it can often make dramatic change or investment really feel quite difficult. So again, going into that, you know, how do we make sure we, I guess, get beyond this kind of technocratic language of why economically something may be worth doing and actually maybe challenge that somewhat if it is maybe a case about a different approach to investment or a different imp- approach to what it is we're really valuing, more, I guess, focused on the aims of what we're trying to achieve? Yeah, I think I think this is a fascinating debate. And um quote, I using the book from Keynes where um, Keynes, I'll, I'll get this not quite right, but essentially he said, um, you, you know, he was writing a letter to, um, to, to, to Henry Knowles Brailsford and he, he said, um, you know, when you're thinking about the ideal state of the future, you have to start with ethics, not with economic, not with economics. And I think the point he was making is, you know, you, you, you can't make, you can't tweak your way to the future. You can't make these sort of small technocratic tweaks, um, you know, tweaks, um, I say in the book, you know, we didn't we didn't ban child labour on the basis of a cost benefit analysis. You know, that's not how we approach these problems. Often, it was a big moral argument about the kind of economy we, we wanted and the kind of future we wanted. And often, we were quite decisive actually in saying, you know, this this is not okay. We will ban certain activities, or we'll regulate certain activities, or we'll, you know, we'll be bold in founding, you know, saying free public healthcare is something everyone should have in a in a modern economy. And I do think, again, it's slightly back to this question of economics and the way in which we think about public policy, that everything's got quite sort of technocratic, quite incrementalist. And I guess when we look at these in the big emerging problems today, things like burnout or, or mental health, I, I do think, you know, we, in a way we need to recapture some of that spirit of what, what is the kind of future we want, if you like, almost start from there and work back. And how, how do we go about building that? Because, again, it, it's all very well saying, you know, we need the sense of, you know, what is right or what is fair. And then that kind of gives us something in a way to almost aim our policy at. But actually, at, at a time where, you know, society often feels, you know, particularly divided along various kind of political or cultural lines, often that's, you know, what, what the perception that is being given. How, how do we build this sense of consensus or coalition that can then help, I guess, give a sense of something to aim for? Yeah, I, 
I think it's, I, I'm, I'm quite an optimist on this. So, um, uh, and I think it's because when you zoom out, so politics, I think, has this funny quality. It's like a sort of iridescence or something. I mean, it might be the word that when you look up close, it feels pretty grim um, and gloomy. And the more you zoom out, the better it starts to feel um, in the sense of, in the moment, progress always feels impossible and you feel like you're getting nowhere. And, you know, particularly the last few weeks, you know, it's been sort of relatively kind of grim news in some ways in terms of policy decisions. But when you zoom out, you see this strange progress. So I think, um, you know, I'm pointing to areas like the living wage, for example, you know, even 20 or even 10 years ago, ideas like the living wage were really quite niche ideas and they've emerged into popular debate. Increasingly, you see some employers paying the living wage simply because it's the right thing to do. You saw even the Conservative government in Britain significantly raising the minimum wage, not quite to the living wage, but nonetheless, um, having previously opposed the idea of the minimum wage entirely, you know, even 15, 20 years earlier. So I think some of these ideas, it's interesting, you feel like there's no progress day by day, week by week. But actually, when you zoom out, sometimes you can see progress. And the other thing is, I think often progress has this funny sort of, it's not very even. So you... um, Often what you see throughout history is there's this sort of mounting sense of frustration that builds up. Um, and the metaphor I use in the book is is a, of a mudslide where you know, the mud builds up year after year and nothing happens and it just sits there. And then you'll get a rainstorm and it, if you like, kind of makes un- unleashes the mud and unleashes the force that's built up and suddenly everything changes. And I do think often social change is like that, that you'll get long periods of not much progress and frustration builds and this sense of paralysis builds and anger and then something unlocks it um, sometimes a crisis interestingly but you know sometimes just that sense of collective hope that something is possible um, and suddenly quite a lot of change unfolds quickly so um i think sort of stay stay hopeful i guess is, is one of the messages of the book yeah, which I think is something that's, you know, really quite important. We'll probably return to that theme in a little bit. I'm going to be um, perhaps characteristically a little bit more pessimistic and more, and more, I guess, phrase the questions to you, you know, in, 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 you know, some of these nine big issues that you address is really what, what's at risk if we don't get this right? What, what's the challenge if we are not able, I guess, to, to enact, you know, I guess, the extent of change that you're talking about in this book? Uh, yeah, I think that this is this is the sort of uh, the, the scary, if you like, the other side of the coin, I think. And I think that, I mean, the best example of this, the best kind of um, lesson to draw on is, is, I think, from history. Because for me, the, 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 the most analogous moment to the moment we're now living through throughout history is that moment towards the late 19th century in the Industrial Revolution, which uh, I spent a lot of time writing the book, reading you know, letters and diaries and newspaper articles from that time. And it feels really un- unnervingly familiar in some ways. So, you know, at the time you had profound technological change, which was changing the way people worked, the way people lived, new social problems emerging that governments just had no idea how to deal with and, you know, looked on these problems and they just didn't have the policy tools, you know, available. And, and also this mounting sense of populism, the emergence of populism. And in America, you even had the populist party that emerged, which has some uncanny kind of um, similarities to Trumpism and this emergence of kind of people saying, you know, burn the system down. And obviously on the left as well, you, of course, at the time had the emergence of, of kind of, if you like, left wing, left wing extremism as well. And I, I guess that that was the kind of moment of maximum danger where the economy had changed, things had changed and the and governments hadn't kept up. And it was, you know, the question of what happens if you don't keep up, I guess, at the the time, the worry was revolution, essentially, you know, um, a lot of the reforms we now take for granted, like the welfare system, you know, emerged in that in that case, emerged in Germany in the late 19th century, um, when Bismarck was profoundly worried about the threat of revolution. And so often this was elites saying, if we don't do something to solve these profound problems, then, you know, you'll have political collapse, you'll have that kind of threat of a popular uprising. And I do think, you know, we're not quite or not quite there yet today, but there is, I think there are very interesting parallels. And I think David Runciman, professor of politics and history, kind of um, talks about the fact that maybe what we're seeing now is the the kind of early signs of some of this kind of uh, breakdown and kind of this early, early signs of the system starting to break down. And so, you know, maybe over the next 10, 20 years, things will continue to get worse and elites will finally sort of, you know, face that moment of 
we have to do something, you know, we have, we have to be bolder and more radical in solving these problems or, you know, or else if you like. Yeah. So it's almost this idea of, you know, is it about saving capitalism from itself in many ways and making sure that, you know, when it comes to responding to, I guess, some of the, you know, economic and, you know, technological change that we've been experiencing that we don't, Yes, kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, absolutely. And that, this, I mean, this was a sort of grand bargain, exactly. And um, and this was precisely the debate, you know, in the late nineteenth century. Was this debate about, you know, is is the system capitalism? Is is it inherently, if you like, evil? Is it is it the, is it the system itself that is leading to these dreadful outcomes, or is it our failure to govern the system? And this was a debate is can, can you harness, you know, another metaphor I use in the book, there are many metaphors. Um, another metaphor I use is that governing is like trying to ride this incredibly powerful creature and the creature doesn't have any interest in the, the creature is just pure power. If you like the creature of capitalism, it just sort of gallops forwards. And our job when we're thinking about government is how do you steer it? How do you harness it? How do you steer it in towards the kind of future that we want? And this was the question then was, you know, capitalism at the time was galloping out of control. Some people said, you know, the system itself was flawed and had to be thrown out. Uh, as you say, other people said, there's a way to steer it and to harness it. And that's what we did. And, you know, you have to say, you know, people's lives got better. You know, real incomes went up sixfold. Life expectancy doubled or trebled in some regions. So, you know, can we, can we do that again? Is in a way the sort of the big question we face now. Yeah, and I guess thinking about that spectrum of, you know, it's the system itself that's the problem and the only, you know, way to change things is kind of, you know, total overhaul versus at the other end, you know, talk about, you know, some small tweaks and something a bit more kind of, you know, technocratic. Where, where I guess, do you do you see a lot of the solutions you set out in the book landing? Because again, you know, you use that word, you know, radical. And I think, for some people, that is as much, I guess, you know, potentially seen as a threat, you know, particularly for some, you know, um, you know, political sides as well. So when, again, it comes to this idea of how change is enacted, is this idea of, you know, calling for radical solutions one that you think, you know, is actually going to be, you know, going to bring about change? Or is it about perhaps something that's more incremental and maybe more about you know different ways as you said of taming the beast mm. rather than trying to change its fundamental nature i mean my my view is and i, I say this partly um you know working in technology now because i lead um technology teams and i think my my, my sense is we you know we're not going to tweak our way through this thing i i, I just think that the, the economic changes and the technological changes that are underway are are just too profound for us to be able to, if you like, tweak the, the state of the 20th century to, so that we can cope with this thing. And I say that, you know, I consider myself, if you like, centrist um, on the political spectrum. So this is not about, if you like, radicalism of the left or the right, but it is about not just thinking about tweaking the policies we used to deal with the last set of problems. You know, I, I, one thing I um, say in the book is, you know, we, we didn't we didn't deal with the Industrial Revolution by tweaking the medieval policy instruments. You know, we we didn't kind of in, increase funding for the Knights of the Garter. Um, that wasn't the kind of you know thing policy changes that we made. We we invented entirely new policy instruments that had previously been inconceivable and never thought of before. And you know, my sense when when you look through the kinds of problems, so things like how do we deal with the monopolies of Facebook and Google? How do we deal with insecurity in the gig economy? How do we deal with mental health, the mental health crisis, and and burnout? I think just all these problems, you know, they're not, they don't require tweaks. They require you know, quite fundamental, fundamentally different thinking. And, you know, there's this phrase of paradigm shift that it's, if you like, it's um, different thinking. It's kind of qualitatively different ideas and a different role for government. It's not just, you know, a bit more tax here or a bit less spending there. It's kind of, it's fresher thinking than that. And that, those are the kinds of ideas I'm trying to explore. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the, on the scene with government, without getting, I guess, too, too political, is what, what faith do you have either in, you know, the current government or in governments in particular? Firstly, I think to actually understand this need for more than just tweaking. But secondly, actually having the right mindset, the right skill set, the right resources, the right people to actually bring about, you know, this more significant change. I, I think um, in a way there's something that that all parties are guilty of, which is um, uh, it's just a staggering lack of appreciation for technology, I would say, given given the times we're living through. You know, it's amazing how little talk there is of what's going on in terms of, you know, the, the digital revolution, I guess, as it gets called, um, and just how significant that is. And I think that's something, to be honest, that, that cuts across most of politics. So I think there's something in that. And I, and I also think, you know, often the system does take time to accept the need for change and um that you know there's that phrase from max planck about um science proceeding uh, one funeral at a time um because old scientists don't like to give up you know give up their their prior theories um and i think you know if you're feeling a bit kind of unkind you might say politics proceeds one retirement at a time in, in this sense of you know sometimes it does take a you know kind of fresh thinking and a fresh generation almost to to come through that better appreciates some of these new new ideas. So on, and, that, on yeah. that point of technology, I mean, is it, do you think, is it a willful ignorance or is it, you said, is it, I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, I think the danger is sometimes we talk about this stuff like it's incredibly new in terms of, you know, the impact of, you know, the, the digital economy, when actually a lot of these trends have been happening, you know, for decade or so right. now, um, you know, we're not, we're not in fundamentally new territory. So again, what is it do you think it's at the root of this kind of inability of, of of government either generally or specifically to to really grasp the nature of the challenge yeah i i think it's the um i think it's something to do with this 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 idea of a paradigm shift which is i think a really useful one and it comes you know kind of mostly applied to science scientific revolution so you know things like the copernican revolution and these these moments in the history of science where if you like, our view of the world went from one thing to another. And it's and you get these kind of it's like a break. You know, there's kind of there's a before and after where we we thought, you know, in that case we thought the solar system worked one way and then we realized it worked a fundamentally different way. And there's something fascinating about these moments. And I think in politics you get um similar moments where you know, the economy changes in such a profound way that it's not, if you like, it's not just a kind of quantitative shift. It's not just that things are getting faster or bigger or less equal. It's that the economy is working just just differently to the way it worked before. And I think people, you know, all people, not just politicians, find those mindset shifts incredibly difficult because, you know, if you've grown up with, and this kind of goes back to the, you know, the Gordon Brown, Tim Berners-Lee sort of conversation, if you've grown up with the 20th century model of government and that's how you were educated and that's what you've always been used to and you've you know worked in that government maybe and, and grown up with it um thinking about the role of government in a in a fundamentally different way um and thinking about some of these policy ideas that are that are quite unprecedented in some cases that, that's just that's that's a real mindset shift and i think um you know, that, that's not something just politicians are guilty of. It's, it's something that everyone finds difficult. Of course, at moments like this, we do need those, if you like, politicians that are, that are more visionary, maybe, or that can step above and sort of um, 
think in, in profoundly new ways. Yeah. So we talked, I guess, about, you know, government and you said, you know, why often, you know, change can be difficult or even appreciating the need for change can be challenging. But we also know, and you, as you highlight in the book, looking back at history, that a lot of the time, you know, change is also about, you know, societal change and often pressure as well, whether it's to, to do the right thing or to to respond to challenges. What do you see as the relationship or almost what's the sequence often in, in achieving, again, this sense of significant change between government perhaps legislating and leading the way? Or is it more a case of, you know, social attitudes changing and then government feeling that even just pragmatically, if it's a case of remaining in power, they need to be legislating in a way that responds to that social change? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, well, it's just the, the boring answer is it's all of those things, I, I guess. But the um, the interplay between them, I think, is really interesting. So um, what, one example I look at in, in the book is the, um, this idea of a four-day week that's now kind of starting to be talked about. And if you go back about 150 years to sort of 1870s, that was when the idea of a two-day weekend first emerged. And um, and it's an interesting case study, I think, because you know what happened with the idea of a, of a, of a five-day week um, when that came about was that it was a combination of uh, interestingly progressive employers. So some of the big employers like Henry Ford said, we're going to go to a five-day week and have a two-day weekend because it was more productive. You had unions, I think, playing a, a big role at the time. So unions, interestingly, at the time, unions were pushing shorter working hours, even more than they were pushing higher wages. With that, so you know, working hours was a big campaigning issue for the, for the union movement. Um, but then you did have government as well. So government saying you know, to, to employers, we're going to step in and legislate um, to require shorter working hours, and sometimes not even having to do so because the threat of legislating, you know, that, that kind of le- act of leadership got employers to kind of start offering a two-day weekend as a norm. And then it, then it caught on and became a kind of cultural, um, something that was just expected and that workers started to expect. So I think it's, um, I mean, typically when these big changes happen, I think it's a combination of these different things working in kind of lockstep and each, if you like, feeding the other. And I think you see that you see that today, I think, with issues like um, even climate change, you know, which is arguably one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge we face, where there's this kind of interplay between how people's you know, um, attitudes are changing, social attitudes, and then that's feeding into government. So, yeah, I suppose it's again, all, of the, all of the above, I guess, is the only answer. I think the climate change example is a really interesting one to, again, maybe look at historic parallels to massive crises or challenges that we've needed to confront. I guess, how do you see, given the, given the lessons you've kind of learned and discussed in the book from historically, what a response was, both in terms of, you know, society or in terms of government, what do you think, does that give you optimism for thinking about our response to climate change? I, I think it's a, a mixed picture. So I, I, in a funny way, I am I am in, becoming slightly an optimist on climate because I think, you know, that, that dynamic I talked about where social problems, you know, mount and don't get solved for, for year after year. And then there's a kind of tipping point when things start to change quickly. I do think if you, you know, in kind of on an optimistic day, I think you could see that you could argue that's happening with climate change, you know, that the way that the public debate is shifting so that almost every time now there's an extreme weather event, people say climate change. That wasn't happening five, 10 years ago. The the, the rapid shifts we're seeing on things like electric car uptake, renewables, for example. So I think on the one hand, you could argue that if there is a tipping point, we're sort of starting to see signs that we're we're reaching it. I guess the the, the more pessimistic view that I think is sort of in a way more particular to climate is is the international aspect of it and that that kind of uniquely difficult politics of you know countries each having to do their bit and all looking at each other and you know originally actually in the in the kind of early work on the book I, I was going to have a chapter on um international politics and it was it was so gloomy <laughs> that it felt like such a downer that that in the end we ended up taking it out because um you know, it's one of those areas where it is frankly a bit harder to see how you make progress on that, on problems that are genuinely global in nature, because, you know, that kind of collaboration is is kind of necessary. So it's a mixed picture, I would say. Yeah, and I guess the, the other relatively unique aspect of climate change is also 
the extent to which our time um, to intervene and respond, you know, if you listen to some people, it's too late or but in others, you know, say it's, you know, it's really quite imperative that we don't wait too long for, for changes to happen. Otherwise, you know, it is going to be a case that we see kind of irreversible damage. And I think that kind of brings us back to one of the recurring themes in the book, which is actually in light of all of this, the importance of hope and the importance perhaps of looking, I guess, both back to what we can learn from history, but also forward to maybe what some of our common goals are, whether that's around, you know, fairness or universality. And actually seeing that as a means of perhaps countering what can often, you know, in many people feel a point of, you know, nothing's ever going to really change. All politicians are the same. We might as well just get on and enjoy our lives and whatever happens, happens type of fatalism. Mm. I mean, again, how, how, how optimistic are you about the ability of that message of hope to kind of permeate through at a time, especially when I think a lot of us are feeling a bit gloomy? I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely vital, yeah, that, that it does. I mean, I, again, I, I sort of talk about hope as the kind of magic ingredient in a way, because, um, you know, in a way you can take for granted that moments like this, there'll be a lot of anger and frustration and, and that builds up. And I think, you know, the risk of anger on its own is obviously it becomes either a kind of sort of limp sort of fatalism where you think, as you say, you know, nothing can be done. Everything's the same. All the, all the parties are the same. You know, it's a sense of hopelessness um, or it's a kind of a kind of rage. It's the kind of you know, ill-targeted, just a kind of fury, which which we see, I think, in our popular culture, and that feeds some of the sort of populism, this sort of directionless populism. But I think you know that it's when you add in hope and sort of anger plus hope, if you like, um, where there's a kind of both, you know, both a sense of this cannot stand and things must change, and also a belief that things can change. You know, there's that phrase, "a better future is possible," which is, I think, actually quite a powerful phrase because it sort of captures this idea of, you know, change, change can happen. And I think that, I mean, actually one reason I'm optimistic is that, you know, these ideas are starting to emerge and whether or not you agree with the specifics, you know, there are, there is this, if you like, a kind of renaissance of, of bold ideas out there from four day week to basic income, you know, ways of dealing with the big tech monopolies, for example, ideas on mental health. And so I do think, you know, it's, it's those moments in history where you have that hope, with the kind of anger and that the period after the second world war in Britain was a case in point where you saw this suddenly very rapid change because there was this sense of sort of people looking to the future and a sense of kind of, we can, we can do this, we can do big things. And I think that that would be the thing that we should stick to in, in the next few years is kind of, you know, keeping an eye on ourselves, if you like, and kind of making sure we're retaining that hope. And we've all got a role you know, to play in that. So for some people, this question of the importance of hope is almost maybe more of a, a thought exercise or an academic one in, in how we bring about change. But there are others, and a lot of these are, you know, are people, you know, whose lives and stories, you know, feature in this book, for whom you can see how having hope could be really challenging. Um, you know, there's one woman who sort of says when kind of summarising her her long protracted dealings, you know, with the bureaucracy of the welfare system, that it felt like it had just been raining all the time. And, you know, and these are people who are living lives, I think, you know, which which arguably you can can understand that it would be very difficult for for them to have hope and to maybe take some of this optimism on board. So do, do you feel that the message in your book is one that can cut through to those people that I guess find themselves really more at the at the more challenging end of things? Yeah, and I think it, I think I think this is just incredibly difficult because, as you say, it's um, at times like these, and again, this is you know, this is a recurring theme throughout history. It's um, the, the the kind of the, the people who are on the receiving end, if you like, of our failure to govern and and to give people security in these diff- in difficult times like these. It can feel, I think, incredibly bleak. And that's why you get, I think, not least, you know, things like this kind of search for alternatives and the rise of populism and anger and, and that frustration building up. And I, I suppose it's, in a way, the responsibility is on anyone who kind of works in and around public policy or who cares about these kinds of um, issues to find ways to um, talk clearly about how things can be different um, and to be able to sort of sell some of those ideas and to communicate with them and i think that's not just about politics i think you know a lot of that happens sometimes through art or through music or comedy even 
or even just through conversations that we have with family and friends where, you know, we're all influencing, if you like, and sharing ideas every day in, in conversations with people. And I guess you know, that's one of the role of anyone, anyone who cares about um, these kinds of issues that we're discussing is to, is to kind of keep talking about the fact that things could be different and sharing and learning about some of these ideas that, that could make that so. And again, we've all got a, a role to play in that. Yeah, and I think that's probably a really ni- nice point to end on is that, you know, and it's a question you, you ask kind of the reader directly in the book is, you know, what role do you want to play? And I think, you know, that's that's a really, you know, quite a commanding question. But actually one, I think, as you said, with a degree of optimism in it is that we do all have a role. And actually, even if you said it's about, you know, I think one of the first few phrases you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation was about, disconnection and actually perhaps the importance of even beginning to see some of these changes take place is that importance perhaps of reconnecting and as you said with all those different groups of people it not just being about politicians but also you know whether it's artists musicians creatives scientists you know everyone really you know i think building that sense of i think you talk about the ragtag coalition so i guess just to end really you know what role do you think your book could play i guess either in maybe catalyzing those conversations or in influencing them who would you love to see read it and start talking about it i I think the big thing and this is back to hope i think you know things can be different and i i i I think actually you know that that sense of optimism and um there are ideas out there and we have been through this before you know we've been through something similar if not if not tougher before um you know, i.e. times of great, great change and we navigated them and it wasn't easy and it was messy um, and painful, but we, we did get there and life got better. Um, so I think that's, like the, in a way, the big thing is, uh, and I think in a way the big thing that's missing is that sense of optimism and practical hope. And so I hope that, I, you know, I, I hope the book does leave people feeling feeling that sense of possibility. And as you say, I think that, that the, thing, the thing that people get wrong sometimes is they sort of think, you know, the, the only way to sort of help or contribute to these debates is to go into politics or to, you know, go and work in the government or, you know, kind of work in policy. Whereas I think, you know, these, in a way, these problems are too big to leave to the politicians or, or to even the civil servants. Um, and, you know, it, it's a wider change than that, it kind of, as, you, as we've sort of discussed, it involves society at large. And that includes, that includes artists, it includes all of us in our conversations every day. So um, I think, yeah, that, the big takeaway really, and I hope this is what the book leaves people with is, you know, there are big problems, but we you know we can solve them uh, if we have hope, if, you know, if we believe that that's the case. James, thank you so much for that conversation, both, you know, quite detailed and with some great historical examples. But as you've said, many, many reasons for hope, too. James's book, End State, is out now. And I'd like to thank you all for joining and listening to Intelligence Squared. Bye bye.